five factors are demand for veterinary care, demand for veterinary labor, and that those are the first two factors, and they're both demand related. The final three are turnover, staff turnover, productivity, uh, staff productivity, and then participation, labor force participation. And these are all related to the supply side aspects of, of our labor market. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David Liss, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPaws Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. FurPaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of FurPaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes. Email me at andrea at furpaws.us or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. Welcome back, Positive Leadership listeners. Today, we have an amazing guest that's back with us again, Matt Saloy with Veterinary Managers Group. He has an MA and PhD. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming back with us. We must not have been too horrible the first time around because here you're back with us again. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) Appreciate it. You were awesome. I should say at least I wasn't too horrible. So thank you. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, that's good. Appreciate it. I think uh, if I remember correctly, two years or so ago, I, I used the three words I typically use to describe myself, husband, father, economist. I still have those first two jobs, husband and father. I haven't been let go yet. The jury's still out always, every day, every week. Um, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Well, I'm not actively in a role as an economist. I, I still and will always be an economist by training and still continue to leverage my skills and training as an economist to understand what's happening in the economy, what it means to veterinary medicine. And it's just come in an immense, immensely valuable and handy, even in my new role at, at veterinary management groups. Fantastic. I love it. Glad to hear you're still parenting and still husbanding. That's a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, well, it's a good ask, thing. Them, <laughs> ask them, but yeah, you know, it's a good thing. It's Maybe you're on probation. Nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me what's your favorite podcast or CE or class or the book on your desk? Like, what's your favorite right now? What's left a lasting effect on you? Oh, gosh. You know, for the longest time, I wasn't into podcasts because I just, I found it difficult 
to find the time. And I, then I realized, you know, how, how silly that sounds. Cause you know, you hear people say, well, you, you make the time for the things that you want to do. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but I would say, you know, in the last year or so I've taken up walking as a way to kind of manage my stress and my own, you know, work-life integration and harmony. And so while sometimes I, I choose to just, you know, walk in silence and in my thoughts, now I'm listening actively to podcasts and I've done like the circuit on a lot of recommendations from good, good friends and colleagues, but one in particular, which will be no surprise to you, it's called Inside Economics. And Mark Zandi, who's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, is the host, and he's got a number of other speakers, regular and guests on there. And to me, it's just been, especially the last three years, where even as an, as an economist, you're like, what the heck is happening out there? I need some help. And so spending, you know, I think it's an hour long podcast, so it takes me a couple of walks to finish it. But um, really, really good at helping me understand what's happening and what to make of it. And then translating those insights into my own work and my own understanding of what's happening in veterinary medicine. So inside economics, I would strongly recommend that one. Hmm, interesting. Have you uh, listened? And this is more probably like Andrea's at my level, but Freakonomics, where they look at kind of specific one off little issues and then use an economic lens. Have you ever caught that one? Yeah, I do. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm probably selective on that one because sometimes they'll they'll post a topic. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if I'm in that. Yeah, but, um, yeah. I, I've read the books, of course, and they're they're phenomenal. And Stephen Dubner is just he's a really he, he's an excellent interviewer and a number of really really interesting topics. And of course, I think the one that elevated the buzz more recently was um, their two part series on private equity yep. and PE and, and veterinary yep. medicine. So those mm-hmm. were really really good. Well well done. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, they interviewed the the uh, president of NBA. I mean, some pretty big wigs got on that on that interview. So yeah, that was cool. It's kind of why I asked. I wonder if you'd <laughs> wondered if you'd peeked at that one. Yeah, it's hard. To, uh, that story is a long one too. Like I think they did it as much justice as they could in a couple of two parts. But you could probably yeah. dedicate a month to that and still oh sure have unanswered sure. questions. <laughs> right, and I don't know if there is an answer. Right, I mean, there seemed to be a lot of conf- you know there was some stuff that talked about improvements in the industry or, or individual business businesses. And then there were some that, that certainly didn't. And there was also a lot of extrapolation, right? They talked a lot about different studies of private equity that were in like aggregate. And so they were then of course, bringing those conclusions to what would happen in veterinary medicine. So, Agreed. you know, all good. I mean, it was unbiased, but it was definitely, it wasn't like, Oh, this is exactly what's going to happen in our industry. It was, this is what's happened in other industries and here's some things to watch out for. And, you know, so interesting, very interesting okay. stuff. So we wanted to kind of launch it today, economist, and there's a lot of kind of scary words being thrown around these <laughs> days, you know, soft landing, the Fed, recession, slow session, yeah. stagflation. I mean, they're just like crazy. And I just did like a quick search. Apparently Google, you know, they track searches, right? And recession has shown up about 4x, 400% this year in terms of people's searches than in, than in normal times. Right. So we wanted to bring you on and and kind of pick your brain and have you unpack this a little bit. So we think about the last, I don't know, let's call it two years, inflation, prices going crazy, demand going up, prices going up. Then we get kind of the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, creates, you know, debt and, and kind of, you know, price of debt goes up, people, you know, businesses get clamped, they slow down, they lay off people, people can't afford care, right, in veterinary medicine or other industries or eggs for that matter, because they're up like 400% or something crazy. And so then the economy kind of grinds to a halt. Uh, You know, we talk, there's stuff talking about like, what the heck is even the definition of a recession? Because you've got 
the two quarters of negative GDP or gross domestic product growth. So the economy is essentially negative for two quarters, but then there's, you know, the labor demand is still through the roof. So help us look at what what exactly is a recession and, and what is your feeling or what are some of the indicators out there now, whether they're kind of pointing at this big R word or not. And then can you also help talk to us a little, you know, we hear this term and we heard this in 08 that veterinary medicine is recession proof. That to me feels like a very safe place to be and a nice blanket to wrap around ourselves. And I'm not totally convinced that we shouldn't be preparing for a reset, like just being on the offense. So help us with that. What the heck is a recession? What does it feel like out there to you? And then what does it mean by veterinary medicine is recession proof? Yeah, that's a lot there. Thanks for that, David. And I, I think everyone always has a right to, you know, feel concerned. You know, keep in mind as well, headlines are great at at raising emotions of all sorts. And so it's important to try and tease back from the headlines a little bit, understand what's happening. I think, you know, when it comes to negative topics, certainly recessions and other things like it are like that. It's the uncertainty around what to expect that can generate a lot of that that angst. And so I, I think we could paint a picture here of what's happening. I would say a few things here in response to those great questions you, you laid out there. I mean, a recession from an economist's perspective is is a normal part of, of a business cycle. You, you have boom and you have busts, right? And so it's understanding the cyclical nature of an economy that you have periods where you're growing, growth is stabilizing, growth is slowing, and then you have a contraction and then you come back to the growing side of a business cycle here. And that's just part of a normal process. Ideally, you want that softening period, that market correction, so to speak here, of what a recession does to be as mild and as you know stress-free as possible. And there's lots of things that companies, organizations, households can do to be prepared for something like that. And, and I would say I would be very hesitant around calling veterinary medicine recession-proof. I'm not sure any market or industry is recession-proof, but it's certainly shown itself to be recession resilient here. You look at the 2008 recession, it was affected. We were by no means recession proof there. Growth slowed down, um, uh, wages, wage growth in, in veterinary medicine slowed down and was dampened, but it wasn't as hard hit as some of the other other markets. And the same held true in 2020 during that that brief, brief recession as a result of, of COVID there. Uh, you know, technically speaking, what's a recession? Like you said, it's, you know, the textbook definition, so to speak, is is two consecutive quarters of decline, negative growth in GDP. But honestly, a true recession isn't declared until basically a group of economists at the NBER, that's the National Bureau of Economic Research, defines and declares that a recession has happened. It's actually quite a lot more subjective than a lot of people think it is. And so while obviously that GDP contraction is a piece of it, they're looking at a across a host of, of number a number of different factors, what's happening in the labor market, what's happening with interest rates. A lot of different things go into that that declaration of whether or not in a recession. And so there is some objectivity there. But the interesting thing, like you mentioned, recession, Google searches, whatever, going through the roof here is there is a behavioral aspect to an economic downturn too, that just, you know, sort of Fearing a recession and changing your behavior can also can, can can be a self fulfilling prophecy. Could actually create a recession. So, consumer spending—that's the lion's share of GDP in our economy. It's consumers that that drive that growth. And if consumers pull back and stop spending because they're afraid 
that a recession's around the corner, whether or not one even is, that can actually create that that recession. So there's definitely a behavioral aspect to that. So I know I just rattled on for a little bit. I'll pause there in case there were follow-up questions to that, but happy to dig into the other things. Yeah, talking about who defines those group of economists that actually say that we're in a recession. So because we have several consecutive quarters of, of the GMP going where it is and the labor market going where it is, have they actually said we're in a recession or has there not been that actual statement? So we're technically not. Yeah, this is where I like to say economists have successfully predicted nine of the last three recessions. (laughs) 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 They haven't yet. So we have yet to see GDP fall below negative here for two consecutive quarters, sort of. And I say sort of because Preliminary numbers are always coming through, but we don't have, because there's so much closeout activity in economy, you often don't have a final quarter's numbers until the the next quarter here. So you're operating at 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 least a three to six month lag sometimes, depending um, depending on the data to even define or declare a recession has happened. So sometimes it's not uncommon that NBER, uh, and this, this happened in 2020 because it was so brief they declared a recession ha- happen after it was already done. Right. So, so oh, gosh. Right. The, right. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So like 2020. That. <laughs> yeah. yeah yes. That makes sense. So take us back for a minute, Matt, to kind of whenever the last recession started, 07, 08, whatever it was, what did that look like in veterinary medicine? And let's try to kind of break it down. So obviously, I assume that there was overall top line revenue decline. Was there volume decline? Was it kind of ACT? Was it the similar stuff that we saw in 2020, where emergency practices had maybe less negative growth, you know, GPs were more affected? Talk to us a little bit about kind of how the landscape looked. And then what could we possibly predict? Is the recession in a way the same as this one, right? Like, can you kind of compare that a little for us? Yeah, we can. I think they're going to be very, very different. And, you know, 08 was all intents and purposes called the Great Recession for a reason, because it was a, a long, protracted and pretty significant economic decline in our economy. Veterinary medicine was certainly affected. But if you go back to the data, it's a little difficult because there wasn't a, a whole lot of data tracking this at that time. But you talk to the people who, who certainly lived through it and they can share with you. You know, growing, I th- the, the growth slowed significantly. So for an industry, for veterinary medicine, something around 4 5 6% might have been typical. We were probably seeing 1% to 2% revenue growth there, not contracting. Now, that doesn't mean certain practices weren't losing. But on average, the industry was still growing. And I think that's when we started to get the attraction of private equity into veterinary medicine because they were, they were seeing this. It became a safe place to put cash here in an industry that not only wasn't contracting, but still had some modest growth to it, even though growth, it, you know, yeah. digits low. I think where it started to really perversely affect veterinary medicine was in the labor market. And so around that time, you were conversations around having a glut of veterinarians, too many veterinary professionals. You go back to the articles that were in JAVMA and, and um, NABC journals, that was what the conversation was. And it was having a very detrimental effect in the veterinary economy, specifically in that labor market, because you look at starting salaries for new veterinarians after you accounted for inflation, they were actually declining year over year for a period of time uh, following the 2008 recession. 
And so wow. the average earnings for a veterinarian coming out of school actually were lower than the year before for a period of years because of that 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 recession and then the, the supply of veterinarians there. And this is why I think, you know, yes, there's going to be a next recession. There's always a next recession. Again, going back to the business cycle component of things. So there's always an opportunity pr- to prepare. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be anywhere near, you know, the 2008 type impact uh, for a number of reasons. The biggest one I, w- I would offer is the labor market here. And this is why some economists, and this is where, you know, Mark Zandi and the podcast I mentioned earlier, they talk about a slow session instead of a, a recession, where a slow sh- session is something like a recession. You still have that softening growth. You still have that declining acceleration of 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 of, of growth and revenue that a business might might be experiencing, but you have nowhere near the impact in the economy that a traditional recession has. And one of those areas is in the labor market. We have this extremely robust labor market right now in our economy, in veterinary medicine. Unemployment is at the lowest it's been in, in decades, 3.4%. Um, and sort of a defining characteristic of a recession is that you have elevated unemployment. And so weekly unemployment claims would need to rise. Right now, they're sitting below 200,000 a week in new unemployment claims, which is a record low. If you look look at what's typical in past recessions, like that would need to rise more than double, at least 400,000 or more a week, but probably in the 500 to 700,000 range. And, you know, most economists, they just, they don't see that happening. They don't see that sort of level of unemployment right. occurring Correct. because of the, the robustness here. Yeah. And I would even take that a step farther to say that when you narrow that down into veterinary medicine, the recent statistic I saw was that less than half percent of all veterinary professionals were unemployed. Yes. And I even say that half percent means that they've actually switched professions and they are unemployed at their current profession only because they carry a DVM or RVT license or it's like they're in between switching, right? Right. Everybody in veterinary medicine is has a job, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You said two things there that I would like to hone in on. You talked about a slow session and you talked about preparing. So how, like, let's dumb this down a little bit and say, how do practice managers, how do we prepare for this slow session that's coming our way, considering our profession is not recession proof, right? But it's still going to hit us. So how do we prepare for that? Yeah, that's great. So I think to answer that, it's identifying what the true threats to our economy are right now and in the future. And and there's probably, you know, three big things I would I would say. Inflation is the true number one economic enemy. It's at the highest level it's been since the eighties. Ultimately, you know, a cooling labor market is is gonna be what's needed to to get that under more manageable numbers here and, and rising interest rates, which the Federal Reserve is is undertaking are supporting that. And it has cooled down a little bit. Inflation has come down a bit in the last few months from a high of over 10% um, to now somewhere probably around seven or eight. And we're continuing to see that. The other thing is declining labor productivity. This is huge. And some of it is new and some of it is just part of a long run trend. And in fact, McKinsey and company, the consulting agency just put out a really great report on the state of American productivity. And we've witnessed average labor productivity declining over the last several decades in terms of output per hour of work. That's sort of the the bellwether measure of productivity here. But COVID certainly had a tremendous impact 
on that. And in some ways, we, we haven't recovered. And, and McKinsey was quantifying this loss of, of productivity and basically came up with a $10 trillion economic impact that this productivity decline is having wow. on our economy, which translates into a $15,000 loss per a U.S. household. And so it's really significant. And productivity growth is really important because when we grow productivity, it relates to economic growth, it relates to income mm-hmm. growth, it relates to wealth wealth expansion. And that all is dampened when we have this declining productivity. And the third one is supply chain bottlenecks. I mean, that also drives inflation, but that's also a constraining factor in our economy that we still need to work through. But definitely inflation mm-hmm. and productivity are the, are the two big ones there. Um, and mm-hmm. when you have that, when you know that, that, that spells the way for some things that practices, businesses, and households can do strategies for successfully preparing for a recession or a slow session or whatever we want to call it there. And I can dig into that, but maybe I'll, I'll pause and you want to react to any of that. No, that's really interesting. If if we think about labor and productivity as being challenges, we need to have folks to be productive, right? And we have to improve throughput. And I'll you know I'll use that word and then kind of define like the amount of movement through a practice, right? The amount of, you know, increasing the either number of visits you're seeing or the efficiency of the visits or possibly the the price per ticket, which has a little bit of price increase in it, but you can get some productivity there. We have to have folks, right? And if we have 0.05 or 0.5% or whatever you mentioned as unemployment, human beings kind of have a natural wall, I think, when we're not training for a marathon. At a certain point, you can only, a nurse or a veterinarian can only see so many patients. You've spoken and analyzed a lot of kind of workforce issues from the macro sense in veterinary medicine. I was so unfortunate to not have made the recent veterinary partners meeting, but Andrea did and mentioned that you gave a talk around five factors that kind of explain where we're at in the veterinary workforce and issues and looking to the future. Can you go through some of those and talk a little bit about how the heck do we get more productive when we can't find folks to fill slots that we need? Yeah, absolutely happy to. You know, succinctly put, the five factors are demand for veterinary care, demand for veterinary labor. And that those are the first two factors, and they're both demand-related. The final three are turnover, staff turnover, productivity, uh, staff productivity, and then participation, labor force participation. And these are all related to the supply side aspects of, of our labor market. And I would say, you know, the first two, the demand for veterinary care, veterinary services, and the demand for veterinary labor this has probably occupied the majority of, of a lot of conversations in veterinary medicine in terms of what, what's happening in our markets and what we need to do about it. So you see headlines like, you know, practices face high demands amid adoption booms and staff shortages and, you know, demand skyrocketing, leading to a shortage of, of veterinarians. And I think we've got to look at those supply side issues that I mentioned around turnover, productivity and participation to to fill in the other piece of the story of what's happening here. Because if you go back to, you know, 2020 and what happened there with the the rapid acceleration and the return to demand for services, it definitely went down. You you look at revenue year over year growth, like there was a period of time during the closures and quarantining of 2020 where things went rock bottom. And there was a lot of talk in, in, in some states and regions around, you know, just endless swaths of practices having to close their doors forever because they weren't making enough, they weren't getting enough business. And then you just as fast, the, the rapid comeback from that. And, and a lot drove that, I would say. And it was sustained, you know, through parts of 2021 as well. 
But, you know, you look at the data and you see a few things that bore itself out. I mean, one, this this sort of notion that there was a epic boom of adoptions, like the data don't bear that out. You look at the national data from sources like Shelter Animal Counts and others, they're very clear. 2020 was the lowest year of pet adoptions in, in the five years prior, and it rebounded a little bit in 2021. But we still haven't reached the levels of pet adoptions that occurred pre-COVID. And so you look. Wow. Yeah. So you scratch your head. You're like, what happened here? Right. And so a few things happen. And this is what I've called cyclical factors. You know, these are part of the business cycle and some things that have also been not permanent changes in our economy. So a couple of things. The first one and the one that had the biggest impact was real disposable income. And this was, was a direct result of the three major stimulus payments that were provided as a part of the COVID Relief CARES Act. The first one being given in April of 2020, and then you had another significant payment in January of 21, and then again in March 21. And you add those three together, and the average household income was elevated by about 30% for a period of time. So imagine just be giving, being given 30% more income. Like That's a lot of extra cash. And this is part of the reason why we have the inflation that we do because of this, this stimulus. Not to say that wasn't the wrong or the right decision at the time. We definitely needed to support our economy in a really wholly important way, and that definitely did it. But that led to surges in spending across the economy, and veterinary medicine was a big beneficiary of that. You also had pent-up demand because people weren't getting out to the clinic in 2020. That spilled over into 2021. People spending more time at home, and we know through studies at the AVMA that being a remote worker increased the, the volume of spending and the level of expenditure on veterinary care. But those all started to subside as we maneuvered through COVID, right? Like stimulus payments aren't being given anymore. That's come and done. We've worked through pent-up demand for the most part. And then, you know, people are returning to work or resuming a more normal work schedule there. But all that led to the cyclical increase in the demand for labor. And so you look at a number of sources that have post jobs, like they went through the roof from about June, July of 2020 and kept climbing until you reach around the summer of 2021. And then that came to a sudden and complete halt. And now they've sort of hovered and started to plateau a little bit. And and there's no coincidence to that. That's that's coinciding directly with some of these factors that I mentioned, that pent-up demand being worked through, people returning to work and resuming a normal work schedule. And then obviously the end of those stimulus payments resulting in the end of that fluidity of cash that a lot of households had. What remains, though, is these stubborn, persistent supply chain issues that we're having, uh, these su- supply side issues, I should say, we're having in our labor markets around turnover, productivity, and participation. And that's where the true story starts to really become more clear around why do we feel so busy? Why do we feel like there aren't enough people? And then what do we do about it? Yeah. Okay. I just need a second to unpack all that. <laughs> yeah, I decided to take a breath before I dig into those three because they're they're complicated in and of themselves too. No, absolutely. But there's a there's I mean, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, it's fascinating that you said that pet adoption was. I mean, I guess a myth. Yeah, let's call it what it was. That is right. mind blowing a little bit because. Right. I mean, literally, Matt. That was on the news. I mean, there were news oh. articles about that. And how the heck did we, I mean, not to completely divert this, but how did we miss that? How did everybody jump on something that was really, a? I don't even know if there was a statistic, but if somebody yeah. grabbed something that showed it was it was growing, how did we miss, how did we jump on that false statistic? Were we look, looking for an answer and that was an easy one? 
Uh, yeah, so this is where I start to lose faith in any anything in the news, right? Because you're going to start digging really, really deep. <laughs> and I would say, go back to those stories, and I, I'll bet you every single one of them tell the story of a local shelter that's been picked clean, not an animal, not a dog, not a cat left to adopt. But that's where typically the story stops there. None of them have ever really told the, told the story of what's happening nationally. And that's where you've got to to get a big picture of view of what's happening. The reason why a lot of those local shelters were picked dry were, you know, a number of things that happened. So you go back again to 2020, quarantining, closures, like every business was shutting its door. And animal shelters were were no exception. But they had to do something with, with animals. So they pushed a lot of animals to, to foster care, like reducing their population in the shelters. And then other things that contributed to a dwindling supply of animals to adopt, things like relinquishments were way down. People weren't dropping off their pets like they and giving them up like they were pre-COVID. Animal control was a lot less active during those months, picking up strays and bringing them to the shelter. And even when shelters started to reopen, those forces kind of stayed. A lot of animals stayed in foster care. People weren't dropping off their pets or relinquishing them. And it, was, it just took longer to adopt, too, because you weren't letting people in, right? You weren't opening your doors and say, come, adopt. Like, you still had to be careful and, and engage in social distancing, which made it more inefficient, to put it simply, to adopt a pet. So there were a lot of factors there. Uh, but certainly the stories of those local shelters, they were there, but because they were doing things. They were pushing animals out to foster care. They weren't getting supply of animals to adopt because stray pickups were down, relinquishments were down. Interesting. Oh, huh. yeah, right. very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned, so you're talking about the five factors. We talked a little bit about the demand side. It was interesting. What's going on on what you call the supply side? So turnover, I feel like everybody, how do I say this? Everybody's talking about turnover. Let's just talk about the non-data like perception. Everybody's leaving their jobs. Everybody's quitting. Everybody's going to another veterinary hospital for XYZ, more pay, better benefits or whatever. But then on the reverse side, everybody's talking about how to keep their staff, right? So like, is there truly a turnover issue? That's kind of my first question to you. And then the second question is, you know, kind of bringing it back to what I was talking about earlier is how do we get more productive so that we can meet the needs of the animal owner community, right? Because there's increased increased demand or will be, or there's going to be maybe, you know, over time without folks, right? Without vets, without nurses, without building more veterinary hospitals, like really easily. How do we kind of look at those two things? Yeah. So turnover is a big piece of this. And if you look at the number of job openings in the economy, you see it shoot through the roof. You juxtapose that with uh, quit rates in our economy, and you equally see it shoot through the roof. So the Part of the reason why we have so many job openings is because people are quitting their jobs in droves. And this just creates, you know, a perfect uh, goat rodeo, if you will, for the labor market and for individual businesses. And I think when you look at that, you've got to step back a little bit and ask the question here, do we have a recruitment crisis on our hands or do we have a retention fiasco? Because people are not staying in their jobs. That turnover is extraordinarily high. In our, in our labor market generally in the U.S., but when you dig deep and you, you look specifically at veterinary medicine, like it is a huge problem. And honestly, I think it was a problem before COVID, but I think COVID and certainly the last couple of years have made it significantly worse. Just to throw in some numbers there, you look at the average turnover of a DVM, 
it's upwards around 20%, which is nearly twice that of a physician in private practice. And then you look at the turnover, the average turnover for a technician, and you're looking around 30 to 40%, which is the highest when you start start comparing it to other health professions, even higher than a registered nurse, which have some of the most notorious turnover of all the health professions. But then you have technicians that stand apart from the crowd in a wholly disappointing way. And so, you know, critical questions come up around why is turnover so bad in veterinary medicine? And if we could reduce turnover and keep staff with their employer within the practice, would we feel like we need as many people as we do? Because it's it's a huge problem. It's not just the replacement problem. It's all of it involved, right? Because it's very costly to recruit. It takes time. It takes money. When you finally do hire someone, you've got to train them. It takes them time to be good in their jobs. But then you got to think about the losses too. So if you lose someone because of turnover, like that's a loss of experience. That's a loss of institutional memory. It can impact your team. Morale, engagement decline. You could lose clients, right? Because if, uh, if if you've got a veterinarian who's just had won the heart and soul of so many clients, like the client might go with them if they've gone down to a pra- practice down the street, for example. So there's a lot of hidden costs to turnover beyond above and beyond just the direct costs there. Yeah, I would agree. And I always say my kind of mantra there, right? Recruitment versus retention. What's the real problem? Yeah. Because if all these hospitals say we're recruiting, we're recruiting and there's signing bonuses and all these things and headhunters and, you know, all the things that go with that, I'm going to ask them, why aren't you retaining your top talent? What's the problem? there? Yeah. And if it's growth, fantastic, it's growth. But oftentimes it's not growth. There's a retention problem. There's a retention problem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about this mid-level practitioner. And David might need to jump in here because he's the RVT VTS and, and I am not. I see it as potentially a way we can better utilize our team members. And, and I'm all about utilizing our team members to the fullest extent, whether it's a veterinarian, an RVT, a tech assistant, a kennel assistant use them to their fullest abilities because that's how you are going to have retention in your practice, right? Right. Is to keep them doing what they want to do and keep them engaged in their job and teaching them new things and and all the things that we can do to help retention. So what about a mid-level practitioner? We don't have enough employees. We don't. And the ones we do, if we're missing ones, they're they're unemployed, right? Our unemployment rate for veterinary medicine is, is, is low. So, and those are probably the bottom feeders we don't want anyway, but... How can we integrate a mid-level practitioner into veterinary medicine? Can this be a solution to the slow session? Does it cause even more problems because we don't have enough team members? Is there a divide between the RVT, VTS, and DVM where this VNI comes into play or you know, lack of, of utilizing our, our people correctly? So let's talk a little bit about this mid-level practitioner. And David, again, jump in if you think I'm I'm saying something completely no, wonkadoodle. Yeah, no, I think you did a really good job. I mean, from what I, and I don't know too much about it, from what I understand, the corollary is a nurse practitioner. The idea is that a veterinary technician, I don't think it's actually, I mean, there's some debate about whether you take the VTS, that tech specialist person and, and change their scope of practice, but it could just technically be like an RVT and then a different lane. And they theoretically would be able to do some diagnosing, some prescribing, maybe some minor surgery essentially what a PA physician assistant or 
nurse practitioner does in human medicine. And the idea is to, I want to say open the floodgates, but to kind of create a little bit of a relief valve for veterinarians with the demand. You know, I think some of the arguments have been, you know, could a mid-level practitioner see a recheck or a wellness exam, give, you know, an exam and vaccines, maybe pop an abscess. And the DVM could do dental surgery, et cetera, et cetera. But Matt, you know, you've done some work here. There's been a lot of chatter about this. There's been some colleges that have talked about it. There's also been a ton of pushback. What's your take? And could this be the solution for our productivity crisis? Yeah, the simple answer is it's complicated, right? So there's a lot. <laughs> That's the simple answer. Really the answer. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. We, yeah. we ask you for answers on this podcast, not making things more complicated. No, I'm just yeah, teasing. <laughs> I'm going to add complexity. <laughs> Two things. I mean, there's possibilism and probabilism. Is the mid-level approach, is it possibly a solution? Sure. I think anything's possible. The question I would ask is, what's the probability that this is going to solve some of the many issues that you just spelled out there? I think to answer that and understand how helpful this type of approach or uh, strategy is, is again, to go back to some of our labor force issues. And we talked about that high turnover creating an issue resulting in a feeling like we don't have enough people because we can't keep the ones that we have. I'll also throw in productivity there because we saw the average productivity of our DVMs decline by 25% in terms of the volume of patients that they could effectively see in an hour. Now, this does not mean they're not working hard. Goodness gracious, I think every professional is working harder than they ever have before. This is the hidden tragedy of declining productivity. You can work harder and get less done because so many barriers have come up to delivering care, making it more complicated, making it more difficult. The, the issue here is if you have declining productivity of 25%, you need 25% more people just to keep output constant, let alone if there's an increased demand there. So AVMA came out recently with some interesting productivity numbers and analysis at the forum, the economic forum in October, and said that if we could boost productivity across 10,000 veterinary practices, we would reduce the, the workforce shortage by, by several thousand professionals there across DVMs, technicians, and, and non-medical support staff. And then the third piece there is that labor force participation. These are people who have left the labor force saying, I'm done. Like This is not worth it to me. I'm not working. And these are unemployed people. Unemployed are individuals not working, but looking to work. Those that aren't participating in the workforce are just simply out. And we saw labor force participation amongst DBMs decline by almost 2.5% in 2021. That's roughly the equivalent of 3,000 veterinarians saying, I'm just not going to work here. I'm not going to work at all. It's rebounded a little bit, but not fully. But that issue, those three collectively, turnover, productivity, and participation in the labor force, those have all resulted and a supply chain shock to our labor market resulting in the feeling of the need for more. So, you know, different approaches can come out here, whether it's a mid-level practitioner or other things that have come up around open more vet schools, expand class sizes. The challenge with some of these approaches is not a problem of needing more necessarily. You know, it's like trying to fill a bathtub with the drain open. Like, yeah, you need more water, but isn't a smarter solution closing the drain first? and then deciding how much water you need to fill that tub. So what about staying focused on reducing turnover and improving engagement in veterinary practices? What does it take to re-engage those that have dropped out of the labor force? What do they need to be re-engaged? Is it higher wages? Is it more flexibility? Is it a better quality of work and work-life balance? 
and then productivity. What are the barriers? But why has it become so hard to be a veterinary professional? And what can we do to make it easier to deliver veterinary care in a way that our people feel less burnt out and are more productive and better equipped to deliver veterinary care? I know it's not a direct answer to is the mid-level a solution to our problem, but I think it's important to take a step back, evaluate what our problems are and what are the effective strategies for coping with it. And I do like that you said, you know, is it is it possible versus is it probable? Because yes, we can say, we can talk all we want about, yes, it's possible and this is how we can do it, but is it probable? We still have, I think there's one state left that doesn't recognize licensed technicians and we still have four different technician designations and we have VTSs popping up with new VTSs focuses all the time. And so I think we're so far from, is it probable? We can't get our veterinary medical boards to align in our practice act to say what one state can do and what other state can't do as far as what our licensed technicians are allowed to do. So taking that a step further and saying, hey, let's let's allow them to do or not to do this or have this other specialty, like we, we can't even get what we have together, right? It's true. And, you know, from a, an economic standpoint, I mean, going back to what I painted as the major issues here, inflation is certainly one of them here. And we've got to be careful about how inflation is affecting the markets for veterinary care. Like we know we're rising prices and the rate of price increases in veterinary medicine are on average higher than the, the average rate of inflation, meaning we're raising prices more than the average price rise in, in our economy for goods and services. And that creates an affordability problem. That was a problem before COVID, but if we keep going down that path, creates an affordability challenge, which could affect demand for veterinary care. And if you think about the largest single cost center in any veterinary practice, and this is true of most businesses, it's labor. It's labor. It's your talent there. And so we have to be really careful, which is why, you know, I cause for concern and just thinking, thinking through and taking a step back when we look at proposals around more, more, more. We need more. We need more people. We need more schools. We need more types of people through a mid-level. That's going to influence the single greatest cost center of any veterinary practice, if it's not mm-hmm. met with some balanced change in productivity mm-hmm. or efficiency, so that it doesn't d- drive those price increases. And so I think to what you said, Andrea, it's around how do we effectively use what we've got right now, right? This is economics, the study of how to allocate scarce resources. So we have technicians that we know are not being fully engaged, that we know are not being fully utilized. How about we address that? We know that there's a challenge. Mm -hmm. How about we remove those barriers to make it easier to deliver care and Mm -hmm. and understand what what we need to do to deliver that outcome? And for God's sake, let them drive revenue. Let them (laughs) do what they're trained to do. Right, right. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You know, if we can't figure out how to use technicians, goodness, how are we going to figure out how to optimize the use of a medical practitioner? Yeah, yeah. You know, these are the challenges here. And so, mm-hmm. again, possibilism ver- versus probabilism. Is it possible it could help? Sure. But let's let's focus mm-hmm. on the, pop, uh, the, the probabilism first and understand right. you know, what issues are here and how we fix those before we move on to the next level. Hmm. So thinking about tools that we have now like it, rather than rather than living in la la land of what isn't right which this mid level is mid level practitioner is not there is no mid level practitioner but we do have some tools that really came to light during covid telemedicine 
telehealth, teletriage, I don't really know how it's all broken down, but I do know that there's right. some room for a veterinarian and a VCPR. There's also some room for advice that could possibly not be given by a veterinarian. What are your thoughts, Matt, on these tools? Are these productivity enhancing tools that you think could could possibly truly be at least a, if not a solution, a band-aid for right now? Yeah, I certainly think there's a role here for them to play. And it's really exciting around the evolution of technology and what it's capable of doing now, particularly in the services sector. Obviously, you see it leveraged in, in human healthcare, and I think there are, there are tremendous opportunities for that to happen in animal health and, and veterinary medicine. You know, we still see some challenges here, provided a, a Band-Aid of sorts during COVID, and we def- definitely saw uptick in the number of practices that were using telehealth, telemedicine, teletriage here. But I wouldn't say it's taken off necessarily, right? There still seem to be some frictions here around uptick and alignment buy-in by pet owners, by clients, and using telemedicine. This certainly isn't a case, and I think this is where we have to be careful. It's not a if you build it, they will come sort of thing. I think there still needs to be an important relationship between veterinarians and clients where that trust and that, that sort of relationship exists, where telemedicine right now exists as an, as an extension of that, being able to provide additional convenience and accessibility to veterinary care. And, you know, this is part of the, the challenge that we've got to figure out, you know, as a profession, those areas that need access the most, like rural areas, difficulty you know, finding or seeing a veterinarian within a reasonable distance, like those are the areas that really need telemedicine, but this is where we see the lowest uh, uptick of it. And part of that's tied to technology and the lack of bandwidth and stable internet and those types of areas to support it. But it's also, you know, an affordability issue and then the lack of being connected to a veterinarian in the first place. So I think, you know, it's exciting. I think there's lots of opportunities to integrate it into a continuum of care, a spectrum of care. But there are definitely some things that we've got to still figure out before it's the, you know, full value and the potential of it to be released in the, in the industry. I love it. You know, I go back to we're about 100 years. Veterinary technicians are about 100 years behind nurses. <laughs> and, you know, technology comes so fast for us now. It's, you know, drinking through a fire hose on a regular basis when it comes to technology. And so eventually we'll get caught up, right? Eventually we'll be able to utilize technology in, in the way that we want to. And veterinary medicine is just behind in that way, too. So that's well, fantastic. It, 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 I love we're that. We're catching up, I think, you know. In, we are. In we are. Slowly, but we are. Where, there are some ways where... We're ahead of the game, too. I think, you know, I know you've heard these discussions, too, that some of the areas that make animal health, veterinary medicine uniquely different is our patients don't talk. So we have to consider that right now. And there's exciting, you know, technology around the corner on on wearables, pet wearables that can help provide some exciting biometrics, right? But there's only so much that can be communicated around what's happening with a pet virtually. You know, certain things like derm issues and things like that, that you can visualize. I think there's some really exciting opportunities. But what about a pet that's not, that's got some mobility issues or that's not eating or maybe has some digestive issues? I mean, there are some very serious things that can only be uncovered through the touch of a human hand and, and a physical. Right. Diet. Exactly. Yeah. So we've got to be careful. What we don't want to see is an elevated rise of malpractice suits because we don't have the technology or it's not caught up to where we need it to be just yet in order to provide the level and the quality of, of care here. So just, you know, 
there are some considerations. It's exciting. There's a lot of potential, but some things to work through too. So I want to bring it right back around to what we were talking about when preparing for an economic slowdown or a slow session. What are two or three mistakes that we make in a regular basis in a veterinary hospital that we should avoid when preparing for a slowdown or or for other things? What can we do to correct it if we're doing it? Stop doing this and start doing this instead. Yeah, I think, well, you mentioned it earlier, uh, not taking it seriously or not preparing, right? I mean, so that's an obvious mistake. There's always an opportunity to prepare. You know, a few common mistakes I see is, especially now during this this busy time, which I, I think is normalizing and softening like we've talked about, but certainly this was something that we've all heard of the last year or more, was practices turning away patients, telling them to go elsewhere. And during a period right before an economic downturn, you want to actually create a backlog of business, something to fall back on as demand starts to subside. I think that's a strategy that every practice, every business needs to look at. Sometimes too, during a period of declining revenue, a reaction for many businesses, particularly small businesses that might perceive they don't have a lot of options, is to raise prices as a way to bolster that loss of revenue. And again, that's going to be a mistake because that's going to negatively impact demand. But especially in this environment of high inflation, like I think we're reaching those tipping points where consumers are pushing back against high prices across every area of their budget. Much better to focus in on on savings and where you can economize, elevate productivity rather than raise prices. You know, then the third thing I would say is is lack of communication with clients. Really, really important to drive home that value proposition of what makes veterinary care important, essential, and the value that your practice provides above and beyond, you know, the basics. Always an opportunity to communicate that. But, But especially during a period of economic challenge, the need to be very, very proactive about that. If the only time you're communicating with your clients is when you see them, we've missed the ball. So making sure that there's a bridge in that communication uh, between visits, reminders, how you do that, scheduling in advance and making sure you've got those appointments booked, those are all really important. Fantastic. I love it. Those are some great key takeaways, Matt. I appreciate that. I'd like to wrap up with asking you for a piece of advice that you could give our listeners today. Anything in the world, what would it be? I would say be careful with everything you read. Going back to what we discussed around, you know, the pet adoption and the articles and the misconception there, you know, a question to ask yourself when you're reading anything, is this opinion or is this careful analysis? And there's always room for opinion. That's great. That's why we have editorials and things like that. I think what we got to be careful about is opinions driving change when there's a lack of credible evidence there. And so watch out for the sloppy math because it's there. Is there solid research backing up the point? Does it represent, again, that that careful analysis there? Because when we're making decisions, whether it's in our economy, in our profession, or in just in our veterinary practice, like these decisions that could have a lasting impact on people's livelihoods should be based on something more substantial than an opinion, certainly something more substantial than basic napkin math. So just ask those questions and be a critical reader. I love that. Matt, I can imagine the people that you have run into, practice owners, veterinarians, team members, clients, and all the different um, places and people that you've run into. Can you share a story that just made you say like, no freaking way, I can't make this shit up? <laughs> I wish I had something crazy like that since I'm not actually 
you know, obviously practicing veterinary medicine, I don't have some of those crazy client stories that, that others have. I would say I have my own epic failures here as an individual where I was thinking through all the different things that I've done wrong in, in my life and the mistakes that I've made. But the one of the worst ones that I've done was, was um, miss a flight home. And it wasn't just any flight. It was a flight home from England to the U.S. where my wife was waiting for me with a very sick infant child there. <laughs> so it was the terrible oh, call no. that I had to make. Yeah, around, I'm sorry, I'm not coming home. I've missed my flight. And it was just a reminder to make sure I time zone change correctly there. And that's what happened. But time zones are my kryptonite, Andrea and David. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. But I just can't seem to get them right. Well, you made it through, and you're still dad, and still, right, uh, still, that's still true. has yeah. been so. It must that's not right. have been that bad. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. Continuing to fail to translate between time zones, which resulted in me missing a flight home from England to the U.S. Tell me about your proudest moment. Being a husband and a dad, which I know might sound contrived here. Why veterinary medicine? What do you love about our profession? Comes down to the people. Self-care, how do you practice it? How do you decompress? I throw things. No, I, uh, I try to hit 10,000 steps a day. Uh, so that's about two walks, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, and I drink religiously 90 ounces of water. How do you balance work and life, and do you experience any work guilt in that balance? What's work guilt? That way you feel bad about work? No, I don't, I don't feel that. No, I, uh, <laughs> I try to focus less on achieving some optimal balance of things. What keeps you up at night? Things that stress you out or cause you anxiety in your role or in the industry? The continuing challenge in veterinary medicine around well-being and burnout. What gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? I have a cat that jumps on my head a lot, so I'm a member of the 5 a.m. club as a result. What color best describes you and why? Cyan. I've been told I'm a green person by insights and also blue, so marry those two together and you have cyan. And if you could be any animal, what would it be and why? I think it would be an octopus because, well, having eight arms would be kind of cool and fun. I love that. <laughs> That's great. That's the most unique answer I think we've had so far. It is. For the interesting, most unique reason as well. That's great. Thank you, Matt, so much. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Such this a pleasure great. as always. Your Thank knowledge you so is just much. beyond, yeah, you, and uh, we appreciate you. I appreciate the invitation. You two are a joy to talk to. You're very thoughtful on your questions and your planning and appreciate that and appreciate what you do to shed light on what's happening in the industry and our profession. Thank you. Thank so we you. always like to make sure you have a platform if needed, if people wanted to either 
you know, retain you or your group for either consulting or just find out more about what you do, how would they be able to find you or your organization? You can find us at uh, veterinarystudygroups.com. We are an organization dedicated to supporting practices with veterinary ownership, achieve their vision and mission of excellence and supporting the best patient care possible. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Have a great weekend. Thanks for coming by. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, David. Take care. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a -A P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.